Chefs Without Restaurants, Episode 17 with Crystal Mack. When you asked me to be on, I was like, yes, absolutely. (laughs) But then I was like, but am I a chef? And then I realized, I was like, yeah, I am a chef. And that's something I constantly struggle with a lot, um, which is part of the, again, the whole decolonization process, because we have this very, um, or we're conditioned as food people to have this very colonized view of like what a chef is, is, right? It's like a chef wears a chef coat. Oftentimes they have a little hat. This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your host, Chris Spear. Each week, I'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. I'm your host, Chris Spear. On the show, I have conversations with culinary entrepreneurs and people in the food and beverage industry who took a different route. They're caterers, research chefs, personal chefs, cookbook authors, food truckers, farmers, cottage bakers, and all sorts of culinary renegades. I myself fall into the personal chef category as I started my personal chef business, Perfect Little Bites, 10 years ago. And while I started working in kitchens in the early 90s, I've never worked in a restaurant unless you count Burger King. This week, we have Crystal Mack. She's a culinary artist, creative consultant, entrepreneur, writer, self-taught baker, and activist who uses food as a vehicle for storytelling, cultural exchange, and community building. Based in Baltimore, Maryland, she's launched multiple brands and concepts over the years, including an experimental frozen dessert concept, Baltimore's first-ever food vending tricycle, and an artisan collective for creatives of color. In this episode, we talk about using food as a tool for social design, decolonizing our relationship with food, imposter syndrome, culinary traditions, ethnic food and classical cooking, collaborations, food influencers, and so much more. And I wanted to mention that during the show, Crystal had an incoming phone call, so there's a spot that seems to abruptly end and then start up somewhere in a kind of unrelated place. I want to clarify that we didn't cut her off uh, when she seemed to be talking about her Patreon. We do get into that a little bit again at the end of the show, but just wanted to mention that. And thanks to this week's sponsor, The Grotto in Baltimore, for letting us record the episode in the studio. And if you enjoy the show, I'd really love for you to subscribe to it. And if you're on iTunes, give it a rating and a review. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great week. Welcome back to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. I'm Andrew. And this is Chris. And we're here at The Grotto in Baltimore. Our guest today is Crystal Mack. Thank you for coming. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. We're glad to be here today. Yeah. I guess just let us know who is Crystal Mack. I could sit here and introduce you. You're part of a lot of cool projects and you've done a lot of cool things, residencies, businesses, all types of stuff. Yeah. Um, Well, I am a proud Baltimore native and I guess, you know, this is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. So I am a chef. (laughs) I'm a chef, uh, but mostly a social designer um, that uses food to kind of engage with issues facing us as people in the society that we live in, um, political issues, emotional issues, anything of that nature. Um, I like to use food as a way to tell stories around those specific themes. And I arrived at that profession um, after just kind of feeling disgruntled with 
my place in the traditional food industry. So like hospitality in all capacities as a business owner, as a line cook, um, as a front of house person, um, just really trying to find a way to find my place in those um, roles in hospitality and just realizing that I wasn't meant to be in hospitality, um, at least not in the traditional sense. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was kind of how I came to exploring the idea of using food as a tool for design and social design and pretty much my approach to social design, which is how we engage with one another, how to make human life better is to, decolonize our relationships with food. And for me, that's just been a huge process of my growth as an individual, as Crystal, as myself, um, just this whole decolonization process, which has been really interesting because, you know, I think we were just talking about how everything is so gray. It's like so much gray areas as far as like um, our values and the things that we believe in, like no one is like entirely black and no one's entirely white with like the things that they believe in. It's kind of like living in the gray. And that's how I feel um, that I, I'm just not even that's how I feel. I used to think I was very like firm in my beliefs and values. And then this whole decolonization process made me realize like, wow, like you too are a part of the problem, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is fine to have that um, realization. But also like now that you realize like, what are you going to do? And um, for me, it's always just been about living in my truth and walking away from things that didn't serve me um, and speaking out against the issues that I saw that were harmful, not only to myself, but to um, the vision that I had for the food industry that I wanted to see or the food community that I wanted to have or be a part of. So that is who I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I don't know if I rambled on it, but that's who I am. No, this is definitely yeah. a pretty good explanation. And it really seems like with that, you're kind of like, I don't, I don't know uh, what maybe influences you have or, or who inspired you, but it seems to me like you're just carving a completely new path in the food industry that I, I mean, I've, I'm not like an expert or anything, but I've never seen anything like it before. Mm-hmm. You know? Thanks. Yeah. Um, I feel like, well, the funny thing is when you asked me to be on, I was like, yes, absolutely. <laughs> but then I was like, but am I a chef? And then I realized I was like, yeah, I am a chef. And that's something I constantly struggle with a lot, um, which is part of the, again, the whole decolonization process, because we have this very, um, or we're conditioned as food people to have this very colonized view of like what a chef is, chef is right? It's like a chef wears a chef coat. Oftentimes they have a little hat, (laughs) Um, not maybe anymore, but, you know, mostly in French kitchens, but they have the chef's coat. They have the apron. They're working in a restaurant. Traditionally, Um, they work on the line. They have people that report to them on the line. You know, I was thinking of this very like traditional, very colonized view of what that looks like. But then I realized that that didn't apply to me um, and that that was fine. But that doesn't, you know, in my mind, I was like, well, I, I'm not a chef and that's cool and that's okay. But then I was also like, well, actually you are a chef. You're just not a very like colonized version of a chef, um, which you should be embracing. You shouldn't run away from that title. I was running away from it for so long. And I think in 2020, I was like, no, you need to like stand in your truth and stop running away from how, um, how people can understand what it is that you do 
And that's when I was like, which is now, this is like the first time in a long time I was like, I am a chef. Yes. And I even, I guess even when we go back and replay this, you'll probably hear some hesitation in me saying I'm a chef. (laughs) (laughs) I still am getting comfortable with that. Um, And also understanding that I can hold the title of something, but not present in the traditional way what that role would normally look like to people. And even in claiming in that is an education for myself and for others to see. Like you don't have to be in a restaurant to be mm-hmm. a chef. You don't have to operate like a large catering operation. You don't have to um, have a team that you lead um, on the line. It can be very much an intimate experience where you're engaging and educating the public in ways beyond consumption in a dining experience. Well, that's why I wanted to start this. You know, I never took a traditional path. So I went to culinary school and I have a four-year degree, but then I started doing things like working in retirement communities. I cooked at Ikea, but like when people would say, what do you do? You'd say, I'm a chef. And they'd get this excited look in their eyes and like, Ooh, where? And it's like, I work at a retirement community. And then it's like, Oh, like they want to hear this story, like in their mind, a chef Mm -hmm. exclusively worked in this like Michelin star restaurant. And I've worked at some really cool places and done some great stuff. And some of it was almost like me, I don't know, like reconciling the fact that I was a chef, even though I didn't work in restaurants, but I consistently felt like I wasn't a chef because that's how people outside the industry made me feel about myself. But then I'm 43. So I I see a lot of people my age kind of like aging out, right? Mm -hmm. Like they're not working till two in the morning and they're Mm -hmm. tired of all that. And they're doing these really cool things. And I really wanted to have a place for all of us to connect, maybe commiserate, help each other out, especially as so many of us are solopreneurs but also to tell these cool stories and maybe inspire some younger people and make them rethink, like, maybe you don't need to go to culinary school. Maybe, maybe you're not meant to ever work a line in a restaurant. Like there's so many awesome, cool things out there. And I just, with the podcast, I wanted people to come on and share their stories. And I'm not interested in having line cooks at restaurants. I mean, we've had some and we will, but I'm really interested in people telling the story of like what they're doing in the food world that does not relate to working a traditional restaurant job. Yeah. I feel like that is the thing about, um, I don't know, the industry in itself. It's so, I feel like it draws so many different types of people, but I find that as you, once you enter into that industry and then you kind of work through it, like you said, you either age out um, or you're just kind of fine where you are and you don't really go beyond that. Or you start to kind of question like, is this it? Is this all there is? Like, how can I create more for myself? And oftentimes, unfortunately, especially from my own personal experience, um, as a Black woman, it is hard to kind of work your way up to the top. You know, we get less investment for businesses. So the likelihood of like starting at a restaurant and like working your way up to executive chef and then someone seeing your talents as executive chef and being like, hey, I want to invest in you and help you open a restaurant. That is very rare when that happens. And you know, so to me, it's always been like, okay, I got to make my own way. I got to make my own opportunity. I've always, I've always kind of been very much aware of that. And I think that's a cool and beautiful thing about being in food today right now. Like a lot of us are just kind of creating our own communities and kind of showing what we want to have, um, what we want the future of food to look like. And it definitely is a, um, I don't know. I think it's just a a really exciting time and I'm really honored to be doing what I'm doing now um, at a time where, you know, change is being accepted and um, 
different approaches are immediately like <laughs> like looked at in a way of like what is this this is too weird to even be mm-hmm. considered a food job or a food um, career but I don't know it's been really exciting yeah I think there still is a level of that going on but mm-hmm. but that's kind of the whole reason that uh, I approached Chris and wanted to do this is to like let us in the industry who are actually making food define you know, like what it means to to be a chef or just navigate how we see fit, you mm-hmm. know? And like me personally, I have imposter syndrome. Chris made me feel a lot better about it when I first met him. But like, I don't have any type of formal training in cooking at all. I mean, well, in high school, I took commercial foods, a couple, a couple classes. Shout out to Chef Zachman. He might even listen to this. I don't know. But, um, you know, like I don't have, I, I didn't even really work in restaurants. I didn't I didn't work in restaurants. My first job was in high school at a cheesesteak place. And then I was like, well, I'm going to go sell weed because that's more profitable. And then <laughs> my next kitchen job was literally in a jail. Wow. And then that's, that's wow. kind of, that's like, I mean, that's not my whole journey with food, but mm-hmm. that's like where it really started. And, you know, I'm kind of like starting from scratch. So I have this imposter syndrome of like, how can I call myself a chef where I'm like, my experience is totally different than most people who would say that they were, but it's really like about self-education and what you do with it. You yeah. Know? Yeah. So I think that's the thing we've taken away from, um, not we, I feel like when we look at these very, like these systems and these structures that have kind of these very like narrow views of like what something is supposed to look like, it can it creates imposter syndrome, which is actually its intention. Because if there was no imposter syndrome, then everybody would be out here doing whatever they wanted to do, and that's not good. If everyone's doing out here whatever they wanted to do, um, then there would be an oversaturation, and then there would not be a way for um, a very small percentage of people to find success and grow and grow a profit and make a lot of money. So. Um, yeah, and I can't believe you have imposter syndrome. I mean, obviously Sometimes. I do. I mean, like, it has. I was like, oh my god! Like, no, your stuff is beautiful. But I think that's another thing. Like, when we talk about like creativity and um, you know people saying, oh, like you're a creative. Like, I wish I could be creative. I think everyone is inherently creative. It just takes a little bit more work for some people. Just like I think everyone. I don't care what anyone says. I think everyone can cook. I think everyone can cook. I'm not mm-hmm. saying everyone can cook amazing things all the time but I definitely think that everyone is born with the ability to like boil an egg right I agree I think most of the boundaries we set ourselves people say they can't cook but really like if you just tune in you can do a lot of things intuitively actually that's something I kind of Mm -hmm. wanted to bring up with you today you talk about it sometimes is vibrational cooking Mm -hmm. and that the idea I don't know too much about it Mm -hmm. but like I, I understand it and the idea of it to me is like the most beautiful thing because I feel like that's kind of like what I've always been because I, I don't have the training you know what I mean so like that's what I do I, I don't really follow is, recipes yeah. or anything no that that's I mean it's, it's a human it is truly like like you said it's like an intuitive thing where it's, it's basically like cooking off of instinct mm-hmm. cooking off of instinct cooking off of until like things just feel right like the vibes in the kitchen are okay like this is good <laughs> I don't think I need any more salt or uh, let me turn this heat down a little bit you know um, and a lot of times I feel like when we, it's about trust, right? It's like about building trust with yourself, with your senses, 
which are very important things for a cook or a chef to have. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting now we're in a time where um, it's so weird. Like we have this like praise of chefs, but then we also have the celebration of very like highly skilled home cooks like um, Kenji Lopez and Samin Nostrit. So it's like these people are home cooks, you know, and they're being like celebrated like any other chef. It's because they have not only the research um, behind them, but they also have these highly um, attuned skills of vibration cooking, you know, in order to know how to apply the research, they have to have that trust and ability to know how to, um, yeah, I think this is timed right. I think this is seasoned right. I think I can like, you know, let me, I think this is enough time on the blanch. I don't need a timer. Like I don't need to be restricted by time. I can just feel it. I can tell it looks okay. It looks fine now. Um, but that truly is kind of what vibration cooking is. And I think it takes on a whole different level when you are cooking foods of like your ancestors, of your specific culture, of, of your family. Um, I think that you know, that return to vibration cooking, which I'm seeing a lot more now, especially in the black community, um, is really important for the future of food. Um, I feel like we're getting further and further disconnected to, or yeah, further and further disconnected from um, understanding how important a connection to the land is and the connection to the stories tied to food and why we eat the things that we eat and why we don't eat the things that we shouldn't eat or we kind of have an aversion to mm-hmm. um and i think that you know the more that we practice vibration cooking and the more that we read about our food history um the more we know about ourselves and the more we can relate to others around us because there's so many connections in food um like my boyfriend always talks about how everybody has a taco <laughs> he's always talking about that he's like Falafel, taco. Like, it's like, it's the same thing. Like, sandwich, kind of a taco. It's just so funny. But he's like, it's going to turn about. into a hot dog's a sandwich because we can't even go down that road. <laughs> hot dog's kind of like a taco, too, if you think about it. I mean, it, it kind of is. It's like some type of starchy vessel with meat and vegetables or something in it, or some type of, like, you know, some type of substantial item in the center that is being delivered to your face. And I'm like, like pizza. Similarly, everybody has a pizza. That's everybody exactly has a saying. pizza. And it's just like, you know, it's, yeah, it's just really cool. So it's, it's easy. It's fun to like explore those intersections of like, oh, we have this in my culture. It's called blah, blah, blah. Um, and so many, so many of those terms are interchangeable. Yeah. And I find when I'm selling a menu to a customer, like I try and get the vibe on what what cuisines are they deem appropriate. Like some mm-hmm. people say, I don't like this or that, but take something like, a chimichurri mm-hmm. is very similar to a salsa verde, yes. which is also similar to a green harissa. Yes. And they're yes. all like this puree with like herb and acid and some stuff. Mm-hmm. And I know people will say like, I don't like Middle Eastern cooking, so I won't give them a green harissa, but I can sell them on a salsa verde. Or if they don't like Mexican food, I can sell them on a chimichurri, but it's mm-hmm. essentially the same thing. It's like mm-hmm. I throw herbs in the Vitamix with usually vinegar and or lemon and blend it up with some kind of spicy pepper. And it's just really funny that people put themselves in this box of like, I don't like Mexican food. So I won't tell them it's a salsa verde. I'll just call it chimichurri and they're fine. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of ridiculous. Yeah. And like how much, how much I want, I want to educate about? people, but yeah. not educate, you know, like nobody wants to be talked to at yeah. when, they're your customer. Like, it's hard for me to go to a customer and say, like, well, I made this chimichurri. I know you don't like Mexican, and it's essentially a salsa verde. Like, mm-hmm. 
there's a very fine line there yeah. about, you know, like kind of saying, well, they're essentially the same. And I know you say you don't like this, but this is essentially that, yeah. and you know, finding that balance of like educating them without coming off as like holier than thou. I think. No, I think that's, I mean, I think that's, a, that's one of the fun parts about the job, right? You know, it's like presenting new ideas to someone and then making them realize like what they thought again, which was like very black and white, what they thought they did like, or they didn't like making them realize like, Oh, actually I like elements of this thing and I shouldn't restrict myself. Like, Oh, it's just that I don't like human. I didn't realize that that was, you know, that's the thing that I don't like. Oh, okay, what is human? And then, like, exploring that a little bit more. So, yeah, I think that's cool. I think that's amazing. And I think one of the reasons that gets me so excited, like, the aspect of, like, vibration cooking and, like, finding things across cultures that intersect is, like, the way that it brings us together and makes us realize, like, yes, we are different and that's a beautiful thing but also at the same time we're still human and we're still connected to each other so you know if we can celebrate each other's differences like and see the beauty in them then we could possibly be able to come together and create a food future that is inclusive and diverse not only in like the racial and gender makeup but also like in the flavor palette of what it could be you know and maybe finding a way to kind of um reinvest in each respective community so that it can continue to remain vibrant. Um, Yeah, that's so important. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's really interesting to look at political climate and what's going on Mm -hmm. and how that, how you have a view of a whole culture's food based on something going on in the world. And I'd like to think we're a little more progressive, but like growing up, we had a Vietnamese restaurant in my hometown. I remember people saying like, I'd never go to a Vietnamese restaurant because they were thinking about the Vietnam War, you know, mm-hmm. but just that whole idea of like, I don't know. So now we're going into this thing potentially with Iran, but oh, like, know. you know, uh, and, and, and there's so many people living here in this country, not, you know, who have nothing to do with that mm-hmm. and running restaurants and stuff. And it'll be interesting to see kind of what the reception is from the public to things like that. I'm always interested in kind of seeing how those global issues cut when it comes down to it well america is just famous for wanting to remove politics from everything but also wanting to benefit from the harmful politics that we have especially when it comes to food policy like that didn't stop people from eating tacos with all those kids dying in camps you know that didn't <laughs> so like we we are very much um unfortunately the food culture in america is very much based in like escapism and capitalism and those are like perfect partners for um a story that is very like whitewashed and removed from the really harmful and sad and tragic realities of what the food system looks like here and yeah i don't i mean this sounds like such a negative nancy thing to say i was like nothing's going to happen if anything the thing that's going to happen is that people who are poorly informed about the you know which are to be quite frank, is all of us because we don't really know what's happening. We just woke up and like one in the morning and was like, he killed <laughs> the uh, defense minister over there. Um, I think that um, what's going to happen is that you know we might have some like really some some really ignorant people making really stupid decisions um, about where they're going to eat or where the, what they're not going to eat based on um, poor political decisions that have been made. Um, Just, I mean, it's just going to be a continuation of what it's been for the past, what, 
I mean, you can say yeah, it's been four right. years, but it's been a long, much longer time than Trump's administration. Like people making decisions based off of like again, they're very much black and white view, um, and not really like trying to find the facts or decenter their own experience, um, which is why we've had like a rise in hate crimes and stuff. So unfortunately, and I hope that that is not the reality, but if we're going off of past experiences in the past couple of years, that is what's going to happen. Um, and that's not cool. And that's fucked up for lack of a better word. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, you're good. It, it brings me right back to what you said um, about people being like, I, I don't like Mexican food, but like, <clears throat> I mean, anywhere you go, Mexico, their whole food program program is like <laughs> their food culture is so diverse. Exactly, they just pick so it's the like, one thing. <laughs> yeah, like what what is it really that they don't like? Do they not like Mexican food, or do they have some type of prejudgment about Mexico or Mexicans mm-hmm. because of mm-hmm. some other belief or views that they have? Mm-hmm. Well, and I'm, I know you've seen my thing on Facebook this past week. I had some customers and, and I do customized menus for all my customers. So I sent them a questionnaire to find out what they like. And they said they wanted, quote, nothing distinctly ethnic. Oh, Lord. Which, which is <laughs> which, when you're, when, any food, right, right. But, 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 but what they really food. wanted was a Eurocentric French Italian leaning menu, that's which is ethnic. which that's is wild. which is fine, but that that's what comes down to what a lot of people think food are. When I proposed a menu, they ended up getting something that had serrano ham, manchego cheese, marcona almonds. You know, they want they wanted classical French techniques, but that's not what they said. What they said was nothing distinctly ethnic. And I posted on Facebook, and I got some really thoughtful comments from people. I got a lot of snarky ones. There was some joking there, but that's another uh, an area where like. How much do you educate them and say, well, just so you know, you said you wanted nothing distinctly ethnic, but what I'm hearing is you want Eurocentric, traditionally classic type foods, and that's fine. And maybe that will help you articulate that better going forward. But, you know, in this modern food world, there's so much diversity crossover. There's been so much colonization where ingredients travel back and forth. You know, is chocolate an ethnic ingredient? You know, because I had someone make a comment about like, Chocolate's yeah. chocolate's and an ethnic exactly ingredient, exactly you know. So it's just the the view is like, I guess nothing Southeast Asian, Middle Eastern, Latin American is that what ethnic is to some people? But I think that's so hilarious because it's like you also. So that's the thing when I always talk about language. It's like language is so important, and I know I think it's also like being such a hippie, like the Virgo moon in me. That's very much like. No, we have to be exact when we say things the way that we say them. And obviously, like, that's not always going to happen. But, like, even when you said it, which was not, you said classic, right? They were talking, you were thinking, oh, they must want more of the classic. And it's like, well, classic for who? Like, that's not classic to me. That might not be classic for somebody in West Baltimore. Like, who is that classic for? And what are we basing this off of? What's the baseline? And then that goes back to the baseline being European, right? Mm -hmm. But that's not reflective of everyone. And it's just like, we keep like, and I'm also curious, is this a younger person? Or was this like someone like- No, they were actually about my age. You know, judging from the- questionnaire i thought that maybe they would have been older older but they weren't i mean they have children some young actually both younger than mine so i just think that that whole idea of michelin because also in their thing they said um we're used to 
Michelin dining. So, That's so you know, because but now Michelin. Do you even know what that means because Michelin gave that street vendor a star. Right, and, and now you're. Now you're now you're having like they're even having like the best Michelin restaurants in Japan and in Mexico. But I just think people go back to that idea of like when I was in culinary school, you learned they called it classical French cooking. Like everything was rooted. It, it is, is very French, but it's not classic. <laughs> and, and, and I am general. and I am right. so not interested in that. Like I don't want to cook those. I'm not interested in French food. I'm not even really interested in that much of Italian food myself. Um, but it's just interesting the way that the whole thing was, like, positioned yeah. as to what they liked and didn't like. And I'm not shaming this person for <clears> their <throat> taste. I'm not going to person that you have to say yeah. But at the same time, it's also, like, I think, again, like, we can celebrate all those things without discrediting another, right? We can still say that I love pasta. I definitely have days where I'm like, I just want some pasta right now. Mm-hmm. Like, and if someone's like, well, we don't have pasta, but we have, like, ramen. And I'm like, nope, I want tomato sauce and pasta. Like, I'm not saying I don't like ramen. I'm not saying I don't like pho. I'm not saying, I'm saying right now, I just want pasta. So I think um, there's a way to celebrate all things and also celebrate the opposites as well without holding something up as a pinnacle and discrediting everything else. And I think that um, we are at a time now where more than ever, we need to do those things. We need to celebrate the 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 things that are not being centered, um, but also acknowledge that the things that are being centered have helped pave a way, um, in a sense. But also, it's kind of time to like let some old traditions die, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah, I didn't want to get too deep on your Facebook feed there, but <laughs> one person that we know was like, I feel like when sometimes that's code for anything not European. I was like, no, it's not code. That's what that means every time somebody says it. <laughs> yeah, because, yeah. I mean, like you were saying, like every everything is ethnic in some way but like the only person who's gonna say like i don't want ethnic food is like somebody who's has this eurocentric view of the world Mm -hmm. that's just like this is this is classic this is what it is or they want ethnic food but they don't even know that they want it they want influences they want fusion they want all of those things like they want the they want the David Chang ethnic experience, right? <laughs> they don't want like your local mom and pop ethnic experience. And that's not to knock David Chang, but he definitely like you know there was like an Asian fusion movement in like the '90s, but then he like revitalized the infusion of Asian cuisine into American cuisine um, and made it way more like he's the reason we have kimchi ketchup and stuff like that, which is fine and great and amazing. <laughs> but at the same time, it's also like. You know, if that is the only, you know, if, if you're only interested in ethnic foods that have a proximity to whiteness or that are um, approved um, by um, institutions that are inherently white, then that's a problem. And it's a problem because it is telling one story and it is also um, like playing like who's bad and who is good. It's like mm-hmm. passing judgment on certain types of things based on, um, you know, really problematic histories oftentimes, like whether that's like model minority myths or like colonization of lands and people. Like 
So it's it's kind of troublesome. And I think it was so funny that the person was like, we're used to dining at Michelin stars. And it's like, well, yeah, you're used to dining at Michelin stars, but do you even understand the process of Michelin stars and how that works and the judging and how that works and what it takes oftentimes to get those stars? It doesn't cost money to get those stars, but it costs money in a sense in the ways that you don't even see as someone going into a restaurant space. That hospitality and that experience that you got, you didn't understand the amount of money that goes into like someone coming in and changing your cough napkin every time that's you got to order fine linens. You have to pay for the person to get that wash. Then having someone coming around every five seconds to anticipate your every move to give you a shawl if you're cold before you even thought about it. They saw you stroke your arm for one second and like, oh my goodness, this person's cold. Someone go get that. Clearing your plate. It takes a whole team of people, which is the reasons why that we hold in such high regard these like classic French restaurants because they have literally, I mean, all of the roles that we have in traditional kitchens now are based and rooted in French tradition. They have this whole army of people, this whole team of people. Who are, who are quite often brown skin, maybe not even English speaking yeah. people who's that's not their yeah. cuisine. So they might be cooking at La Bernadette, but right. they're probably from Mexico or somewhere in South and America. And that's and even and now, especially in like D.C., but in like places where, you know, where that isn't the case, where there are kitchens that are full of young white people, specifically, mostly men, young white men. They do, um, they do have to pay them. And that costs a lot of money to pay that many people. So oftentimes what you'll find is that you'll have them those people not being paid well, or they'll be paid well, but they'll be working in very like emotionally toxic situations um, and mentally toxic situations. So it costs a lot of money, whether the guest is experiencing that on their end at like a, what, $300 dinner. Mm-hmm. Like I said, that's like 10 courses or something. Or um, on the back end with the people who are working a lot, someone's going to have to pay, you know, most of the time it's not the owner. So, you know, it is, it's a lot of things that come into play, but oftentimes when it comes to Michelin stars, the people that have Michelin stars have the money to afford the Michelin star because it is not cheap to create a dining experience that is, um, that anticipates your needs. You know, it costs a lot of money to anticipate needs. And it takes a lot of time to find the right front of house staff that is attuned enough to anticipate needs um, and decenters themselves enough to kind of truly invest in the dining experience and forget about what they have going on and focus truly on the guests and the dining experience. So I think that was just so interesting that he was like, or they, she, I shouldn't say he, they were like, um, you know, we're used to dining at Michelin. And and I think it's really just... uh what they mean is like they're meat and potatoes people. And then people use that expression all the time. Like just classic steakhouse. Like I want a Caesar salad with like a filet mignon with some beurre blanc or, you know, something like that with a loaded mashed potato. Like that's what a lot of people want. And once again, that's fine. People go to steakhouses Mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. I'm not one of them, but Mm -hmm. like, you know, the people who you kind of talk about going out on Valentine's Day, you know, people right, say like, right. they're the ones who don't go out at all for a year and all they the want is molten, like, molten they yeah, want the molten chocolate little, cake or the cheesecake or something cake. like that. Yeah. And, and chefs always kind of dog on as being boring food, but there's, yeah. you know, it pays the bills, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, just say you want meat and potatoes. Which but, goes um, back to like not, you know, like it goes back to language and it goes back to, you know, not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Like there are things that we can appreciate about a molten chocolate cake. Knock, knock it in a you know a stuffed filet mignon or whatever. I literally had a molten chocolate cake 
Yeah, like from Domino's. So it's like, you know, don't judge me. It's, no, don't judge me. That's the thing. It's very part of our food culture that, you know, everything has its place. But examining the origins of what it is and if it still needs to come with us, right? Like, what does it contribute to the conversation? Um, that's that's the only thing I think that we need to get better with. Contri- figuring out what what can stay, what can go, and why are we saying it can stay and it can go? Um, is it because it serves us or is it holding up this weird, like, false um, narrative about, like, what good food is um, and what good food isn't? And is it rooted in some type of weird um, supremacy that we need to throw away and dismantle now? So, sorry, I'm hogging. <laughs> no, you're good. We, want, we got you on here because we want to hear what you have to say. <laughs> So it's all good. I have a, um, I mean, I have a similar thing with my pizza is like, I've always wanted it to be like, I mean, my business in general, like I started with a mission, but it's not like a mission based business. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But that's something that I'm like still seeking out, like trying to figure out where I lie when it comes to like community and, Mm -hmm. and like what I can do to give back Mm -hmm. um, through my business, you know? But, like, starting out, I don't know. It's kind of difficult to figure that out. Maybe it'll just come to me. But I've been I've been trying to figure it out. I think it's just constantly asking yourself what you need as an individual and also what you – because I, I feel like if you ask yourself what you need as an individual, this is what's been helpful to me because I'm still also trying to figure it out, especially as someone who is trying to constantly um, – evolve and learn more about myself day to day I feel like asking what you want for yourself as an individual separate from pizza llama you know Mm -hmm. like I think that it's it's interesting that we oftentimes as entrepreneurs and business owners and creatives um we try to separate those two things like, well, this is like my business hat and this is my personal hat but it's like the business hat is a thing that keeps you fulfilled as a person So trying to figure out, like, what are the things I want from my community that I may not necessarily be seeing? Or, you know, what are the things that, you know, I feel like I'm missing? Like, that was the whole reason that I kind of created um, my design studio in absence of, or studio IAO, IAO Design. Um, It was just kind of like, wow, I want to create a, I want to have a space where I can have these conversations um, with other food creatives or other creatives, period, that they don't necessarily have to be related to food in their day-to-day activity um, because I know that we all eat food every day, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like there's always a connection to food. So it's easier for me to find that um, link to people. But, um, you know, I want to I wanna have deeper conversations around like art and music and um, social justice, like how can I do that? And it's like, well, if I create it, it's kind of like if you build it, they will come, like feel the dreams. Like if I create this space for myself to explore um, and then put out there, hey, I've created this space. Like if you want to join me um, and have some conversations that aren't traditionally had in, you know, hospitality and food and beverage, then um, I'm here and I'm ready to talk about them. And, you know, engaging people in the programming that I create, too. Those are the things that, you know, are kind of selfish. I create programs that I would want to see if I were not the one creating them. It's like, what would I want to go to right now if I didn't have this? It's like, I would want to go to a program about Black women, food and power. So I made one. Um, yeah, it's it's just kind of like 
exploring your needs and then kind of going off of that. Because I think that's how I found you. I mean, I knew about you when that one day you walked into our house. I was like, that's Pizza Llama. I know that guy. That's so cool. At one point before I like got in that space, I had made it my business to see how everyone else who didn't have a space was building community with food. And I had, you know, I did my, I had a food tricycle called Pie Cycle, and I was also selling um, ice pops off of it. And that concept was called Karma Pop. But I, I, yeah, I was always just like fascinated, like across the country with how other chefs were, you know, running their mobile businesses and popping up in places, but also how they were sustaining community in between those pop-ups and like connecting with other people that got it. Cause yeah, you can have friends who are chefs, but it's a really special difference to have friends who are, um, who don't have a restaurant role every day. I think that they can understand the challenges that you face and the extra level of creativity and motivation that you have to have to get your ideas off of the ground. Um, which kind of, to me is why I'm always like extra hardcore cheering on people who aren't in a restaurant space. Um, because it takes a it takes a lot of like extra work to survive and even be like seen or heard and taken seriously. Definitely, mm-hmm. and if, and if you have a voice, I, you know I'd love to be able to use my platform. But yeah. we're definitely in a time where it's divided. You know, you have a guy like Chef Tom Colicchio. He's mm-hmm. very political, and he'll post something on Twitter, and then everyone kind of well, not everyone, but half the country or yeah. people will pile on and say like stick to cooking chef, you know, yeah, like that, yeah. that you're only identified by your career or this one thing and you're not allowed. You know, he's got a lot of followers. He's got a, a platform and he uses it to speak about things that he is passionate about. But a lot of that pushback will be, well, you're just a chef. Like yeah. you, you don't have the right to talk about that, but mm-hmm. why are you an architect have the right to talk about yeah. that or something else? I, mm-hmm. I find it bizarre. I think of all people, I think chefs are the ones that should be talking about these things Um, because we are so intimately connected to a medium that is about life and keeping people alive. And the key part of a key part of being alive is um, just thriving. It's one thing to be alive. Like if we were just concerned with just being alive, then it would just which we're kind of headed towards. It could just be one of those things where it's like, have you guys seen the movie Soylent Green? So it could just be like a Soylent Green situation where it's like, you know, it doesn't matter what we're eating. We're just eating people. People. (laughs) Soylent Green is people. people, But like, you know, we're just eating and we're surviving and that's fine. But we're not in the business, you know, as human beings, we shouldn't be in the business of surviving. We should be invested in thriving. And that shouldn't be a business. Thriving should not be a business. It shouldn't be costing people money to live life pleasurably um, in a way that they can find joy. You know, it should be accessible to everyone. And I think that as chefs, it is our duty and our job to find a way, um, which is why we shouldn't yuck any yums or, you know, shame people for their food choices. Um, Find a way for people to find joy in their life in a way that's healthy. a healthy relationship to the joy of eating and cooking for themselves for us to cook for them. Yeah. So, um, my question is kind of like, it's just another one of those gray areas where we're in a place now where in a lot of, in a lot of areas, it's like, we need to be paying, people need to be paying more for food kind of. 
because of the service and the whole culture of tipping mm-hmm. and, and just people in the kitchen being paid enough and all of that, food is worth more than we kind of like as a society make it. Yeah. But then at the same time, when you're charging more for this food, then it becomes less accessible for a lot of people. Yeah. So, and me making pizza too. Like I put a lot of work into my pizza. I use really good ingredients. Mm -hmm. I had recently had a baker, like kind of convince me. I never wanted to use the word like artisan Mm. or like, Mm -hmm. I I was just kind of averse to it because I make pizza and I'm like, regardless if it's artisan or not, like it's pizza. And what it is, is like a poor man's food. Yeah. Like that's where it started. You know what I mean? So that's why I was averse to it. But then she kind of pointed it out to me, like all the work you put into it and all the love you put into it and the crafts that you've honed over the years, like that's what it is though. Yeah. And you can charge whatever you want for it. And people will come literally just for that. If you call it that word. So I'm like kind of accepting it a little more now, but I've always struggled with that, you know, because I want my pizza to be accessible to everybody, but Mm -hmm. it's just not really the case. Like it can't always be. I feel like. Yeah. I think there's, I mean, I think there's tears to it. The reality is like as an artist, you do want to survive off of your art, but at the same time, you want to survive in a sustainable way. Um, So it's not always going to be um, accessible to everyone. But if that is a goal of yours, you know, that's when you have that, that menu that is like, it fluctuates in the range of what you have. Um, and also kind of keeping in mind, like the relationships that you have with like farmers, if you're, you know, are thinking about, okay, what are the things that, you know, cost me more money to source, but I can actually like grow myself like basil, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I can grow my own basil. Like, okay, cool. Then I'll cut down on some things and, you know, make this pizza a little bit more, affordable to everyone so I don't have to raise my cost because I'm outsourcing that or maybe you can have days that are like oh I'm gonna go in this area that's kind of underserved and you know offer a more reasonable price or like pay what you can between these price ranges I don't know I think that um like you you have to think about like you said it wasn't like you have a mission but think about what your mission is and think about what are the things that you really want to do with your businesses and if accessible pizza to all accessible quality pizza to all is one of them um i think you can really start to think about ways that you can um cut down on costs i mean that's really the main issue it seems when it comes to like making it accessible to everyone Mm -hmm. what are ways that you can cut down on costs and make it easier for you and for your consumer your supporters but I, I don't know. I, I struggle with that, too. And I think that's one of the reasons why I started my Patreon, because I was like, I want my programming to continue to be affordable. But I also know that the reason it was affordable this year is because I had a lot of grants from institutions because I was doing these conversations and these programs at museums. So I was getting funding that helped cover the cost of speakers and helped, you know, make sure that I was getting compensated for the time that I was taking out of my like months and year to plan this this program. But I also know that I want to have like free range over the conversations that I want to have. And I want to have more radical conversations. And a lot of these conversations can't be had in the walls of an institution. Mm-hmm. But I also need to be able to afford the space that I'm renting. (laughs) So it's like, how do I do this? And that's when you 
can kind of have a real moment. I mean, that's what made me be like, okay, if people believe in the work that I'm doing, a little bit of money would help. So maybe I should ask, you know, and that was one of my resolutions anyway. I'm not even a huge resolution person, but it was one of my intentions for 2020 was to not be afraid to ask the community around me what I needed for what I needed. And what I needed was a little bit more um, sustainable support for um, a little bit more um, a little bit more support in the financial department so that it could be so that the practice could grow, that people could continue to come. Because I didn't want to be like, okay, we're going to have this professor come and we're going to have this chef come. And it's going to be a very like fancy dinner after the conversation, $45. And I know last year the programming was free, but look, I got to pay for these people to fly in and I got to, you know, rent the facility and I got to buy ingredients and I got to pay my chef volunteers. And then it turns into a thing and people are, you know, the whole key part of this is building community and making sure that people are getting this education and information. And if I'm charging, that significantly cuts down on that. So yeah, the Patreon is a way that it'll allow me, you know, to continue growing this community that I've started um, and also continue the work with um, using food as a tool for design. Well, that's awesome. We'll make sure uh, there's, you know, we'll plug that and we'll put links in the show notes to get you there. And we're just going to jump into a new conversation right now. I really wanted to talk to Crystal about collaboration. I've heard you talk before about it. And I mean, it was a while ago, I think. I just, you know... I follow you closely on Instagram, so like I just take what I what I hear from that. But I know that it's like can be a complicated subject when you're working with another individual or a company, and then creating a situation where it's like a win-win for everybody, mm-hmm. or like who's in control. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I guess like personally, how do you navigate those type of situations? Um, I very rarely collaborate. Yeah. <laughs> That's a <laughs> safe way to do but it. Not even, and not even in a weird way, I, I collaborate intentionally. Mm-hmm. I really try to think about what the benefit is to, like, me and as an individual, as the artist, but also, like, to, like, my design studio, and then also thinking about what that collaboration could bring into the community, um, whether that's like the like the target community that you know my business and the other business wants to address, and then the surrounding communities around that, I think that something that I see often, which makes me just kind of want to vom a bit, is like every five seconds it's a collaboration pop up somewhere, and it's mm-hmm. like this takes away like the whole point of why this was cool in the first place. Like you're constantly seeing people. The thing that I see often in Baltimore is a constant recycling of the same collaborations and the same collaborators and partnerships or um, one that has no real purpose. And it's just like, clearly these people needed money. Like this was clearly like a thrown together last minute thing. Um, So how is it that I can find something, you know, we live in a time where there's so many pop-up concepts and um, mobile businesses. So it's like, how can I make my collaboration and my pop-up be substantial and that it is not a waste of the consumer's time and it's not a waste of my time and it's not a waste of my money, Mm. you know? And I think that that's one of the reasons why I don't do them often because it's like, okay, I have to find the right partner. I have to find someone that takes my work seriously, takes their work seriously, and is willing to put in the equal amount of effort to make this happen. Someone who respects business practices and wants to 
you know, if I present them with a NDA or a contract, yes, for a pop up, they're not looking at me like, what? Why are you doing this? It's like to let them know that I'm being serious and I don't, you know, I don't want my time wasted. And I think that um, contracts are important. I think that, um, especially in a collaboration, um, I think that, you know, unique and original menu creation is important, especially in a collaboration. And I think that two businesses or two individuals coming together to value what both is bringing to the table is the whole purpose of it and showing what can be created when two people who highly respect each other um, come together. That's like kind of the point of collaboration, what like amazing things can be created. If it's all about like a power flex or like trying to get in on somebody else's like shine or maybe even like steal someone else's recipes or like that 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 doesn't like what's the point you mm-hmm. know so for collaboration I mean again I don't I don't do them often but when I do I really like to sit and think and in my mind I <laughs> what I do secretly is I make a list of people that I'm like oh wow like I love what this person does like I love Pizza Llama how cool is he like look what he does like how could I work with this person what's a way that this would actually like be beneficial to them, not a waste of time, not a waste of my time, beneficial to me and like a way for everyone to come across, like walk away from the event and be like, wow, like I got to get to Frederick and try this pizza or whoa, like I'm so happy that Crystal did this. It was really cool to like taste these popsicles inspired by Is it it wrong to just want to get together and cook with people who you like and have a good time just for the sake of a good time? So like, but one of the reasons I wanted to start what I do is because I work by myself. I have a personal chef business. I have zero people. And like, sometimes I just miss being around people and having that connection like peers and like Andrew and I might get together. Like we did a pop-up dinner one time that like no portion of the money went to a charity. I don't feel like we were moving the needle socially. It was just like two people who like each other getting together cooking so I mean I kind of I get your point somewhat but I also feel like a lot of these guys just get together because they want to cook with other people they like and you see you know one chef leave their restaurant and do a pop-up with another probably because they're just like good friends and want to cook together and also you know sharing followers or fans I think goes both ways you know like Andrew and I have totally different followers and demographics I think and I think it is good for me to get in front of some of his customers and and vice versa so you know no I'm not knocking I'm not knocking that. I'm saying I think that's great, but I also am not going to waste my time turning that into an event if it's not going to. I mean, I don't know about anyone else listening, but as a small business owner who does not have a space, it takes a lot of time to do that. I have to rent a space to make food. I have to go out and buy ingredients that are going to cost more if I don't buy them in bulk and in mass. So then... I'm going to go out and going to spend more money on ingredients cooking for a smaller pop-up. It just, it's not cost effective. I think it's great to like want to, and I think that's, that's the business mindset switch over for me. It's like, which oftentimes does not happen in pop-up businesses and concepts. People are like, I'm just doing it because I love to do it. And, I, and it's like, yeah, but are you losing more money now at this point? There's one way to, you can collaborate and it doesn't have to be a pop-up and it can just be at your home chilling with your friends and cooking. 
But when you are turning it into like a public thing and you're making it, you're making the decision to make it a way to bring in business and make money, like it needs to make money. (laughs) It needs to make money. Like you can't, you can't just pop up and like have fun with friends and cook and then lose money. Cause that's like, that doesn't make it sustainable. Um, You have to be strategic with how you collaborate. It just doesn't make sense to not, I don't know. Does any of that go back to kind of like a non-quantifiable marketing though? Because this is almost the counterpoint to, I think what our last two or three chefs have talked about, which is like, it takes money to make money. And sometimes you got to go do an event and do a pop-up and give away food just to get in front of people. Like these people maybe have never experienced your food and you know, it's going to cost you a couple hundred bucks in food, but then maybe you're going to get them as a customer. I mean, yes and no. Like you can do that in a market setting, right? Like you can do that at a farmer's market. You can do that. There are ways that have a higher return where you are likely going to lose money instead of just doing it as a pop-up. Like a pop-up is not a guarantee, especially when you are the person bringing in the audience. Like if you guys like did a collaboration at a brewery or something and you know, the brewery has, no food there, but you know, sometimes they have people that are hungry and you guys both don't necessarily have the strongest following. That's a very high likelihood of a loss of money. Yeah. Very high. And to me, it's like, okay, like if I sign up though for a market table, like at a farmer's market or something, yeah, you're going to have bad weeks where you lose money, but the visibility is there, you know, the Mm -hmm. possibility of like return customers is there. Um, that's what I mean when I'm thinking about collaboration and being strategic, just making sure like this is actually worth your time and your collaborators time. Cause at the end of the day, like when you do these pop-ups in spaces, oftentimes like you won't necessarily get like the generous brewery. That's like, Oh, pop up for free. Oftentimes they'll be like, Oh, you guys want to pop up here? Well, we get a portion of your sales or we need you to pay this like vendor fee. Um, knowing that they don't have the traffic flow, knowing that, you know, it's up to you guys to promote if you don't promote, knowing that they are, they have no intention of promoting your pop-up. Right. So or I, even like contributing to yeah, it thoughtfully. Yeah. And then it's not to me, that's not even really that's not a conversation. I mean a collaboration. That's just But that happens so many times. Yeah, and especially when you have people that are like, Oh, we'd love to partner with you or we'd love to collab with you. And it's like, what does that what does that mean? What does that look like? Especially in the time of food influencers, like so which to me is Pure BS, I cannot stand the food influencer movement because it is oftentimes people who have never worked in the industry a day in their life and have the money to and the disposable income to frequent all of these places and really create a narrative of like what food is like in a city or um, what a food industry should be. But they get all of these like really tight relationships with chefs and, um, you know, restaurant owners just because they are um, taking photos of food. They have no real understanding of like the sourcing behind the food. They have no real understanding of the culture. um, And that's like in-house culture and also culture of the food being served. They are just there to get free food and also have friends fake friends like internet friends and i was saying i just i don't i don't like it i think it's disgusting a couple weeks ago i was talking online to a bunch of people i said food is a commodity Mm -hmm. and and they make it even more so though like if you look at their instagram feeds 
very rarely are there pictures of the chef, mm -hmm. the restaurant, any of this. It's just the whole feed is like three burgers stacked on top of each other oozing, mm -hmm. you know, all this like kind of unicorn food, right? Mm -hmm. It's like this 18 layer rainbow cake that's spewing Skittles yeah, out of it. Yeah. But there's very little, quite often no times even tagging the chef or, you know, they'll probably tag the business or something. And I just see these people at these events and they come in. They're not there for the, if there's, if there's an event, I'm speaking, I go to a lot of food events where you see these food influencers show up and they could care less about whoever the speaker is, or if there's some kind of event, they're just there for the food and the photos. And they kind of swarm the tables, take their photos and bounce with no mention of the chef creating it, maybe the restaurant they're from, or even what that event was. They just want to go be first in line and get a picture of this lamb lollipop um and then bounce and get their free food yeah. and they're just kind of removing the food from the whole thing that goes into yeah. it and that's what i find annoying i think the thing that is also annoying about it so i mean i had a a former former colleague of mine who is a food influencer and i say former because i had to have a conversation with him about how he uses his platform um he Posted about, I don't know if you guys recall a few, not a few, what was last year, a few months back when there was that raid on the chicken um, factory that where all of the uh, immigrants were arrested. And he posted something about like food media in his story. He was like, food media should be covering this more, um, you know, but they don't ever want to talk about that. All they want to talk about is like their chefs in restaurants. And I was like, you are someone who goes to restaurants, pulls out your like little flash and takes photos of food. So I messaged him and I was like, you are aware that you are a food media. And he was like, what? No, I go to restaurants and take photos of food. I was like, that is food media. And I don't think that we understand the ways that we are also complicit. I was like, you know, you are literally someone that controls the narrative locally. You don't understand the stories that you're telling are not good and fair and they are not the reality um he had a story not long ago about a couple of restaurants that actually did recently it was a couple of weeks before it was it's a whole crazy story it was a couple of weeks before bon Petit had named a few restaurants here like best new restaurants one of the like finalists for best new restaurants in america and he had also been contacted a few weeks before in the summertime by bon Petit to like hey, like, can you come to this event that we're going to do at this restaurant in Baltimore? And I think it was for, like, food market, like Chef Chad Gauss or something. And he was supposed to come, and it was, like, sponsored by Tillamook Ice Cream. And it was, like, he was supposed to come and, like, take photos and then also, like, pump it up and get local people in Baltimore to, like, show up to this Bon Appetit-sponsored event. And... He had shared that with me and I was like, oh, are you going to go? And he's like, no, like maybe I shouldn't. Like, I'm not really a fan of like that chef and like how he operates his business. And he had also just opened a restaurant that was like a very tacky, like, quote, take on Asian cuisine. Um, and it was like a fake bodega in the front with like Wu-Tang blasting and like hip hop posters all over the place. Obviously, it didn't last very long. I think it was open for two months. So he had chose not to go to this event, this Bon Appetit event. But he also then further, like, chose to support a restaurant group that um, 
has very problematic hiring practices in that they don't hire any Baltimore natives and they don't hire any real, like any people of color, really. They have maybe one or two out of the three establishments that they have, um, maybe four people of color working front of house and um, none of them are Baltimore natives and they are occupying poor white and poor black neighborhoods. Um, And he was saying how like, he posted something and said how diverse they were how diverse this restaurant Mm -hmm. group was. And like all these restaurants, they have beautiful spaces and they're so diverse. And I commented, this is all very true. These are so beautiful. These spaces are beautiful. I love the concepts this person creates. However, not diverse. That's all I said. And it turned into this huge back and forth about like me being negative and me not being supportive of local food business. And I was like, no, this is me just being honest about what's happening and not being in the back pocket of somebody that is giving you like free Japanese whiskey and wines. And like, you know, so to me, it's kind of like, but then like a couple weeks later or a couple months later, what happens? That restaurant group became a finalist of Bon Appetit magazines, like, you know, best new restaurants in the country. And I know how these things work because I've been contacted a number of times by publications like this. They don't come here. They come, they ask the person that is an influencer in the area that has been a nationally recognized influencer, who are the people that we should check out in this area? And they will take that suggestion and then they will come down, do some research on it, come down and then have an experience for themselves and be like, you know what, you're right. That's best new restaurant. And that is what happened. They came down and they were like, you know what? Best new restaurant. These places, best best new coffee shop, best new this, that, and the other. With no real understanding of like the social political climate of the city. No real understanding that you know this this young hipster concept has opened up in a poor black community, and like what their like awarding of best new restaurant will now in turn do to people who are renting in that neighborhood, businesses or apartments or otherwise. And when I addressed to him, like, you know, you don't understand what you're doing with your media platform as a food influencer. You're going around saying this is diverse and this is the best this. And you're talking about these like white male chefs, this, that and the other. But you don't understand how you're a tool for these young hipster chefs. And he got very much offended by it and was like, you know, you're just so negative. You want to point out the negative in everything that we're doing or that anybody's doing. I'm trying to bring people together and highlight the least problematic people in the food community. And it's like, no, you're not. You're highlighting the cool hip people in the food community. It's like, you can't, it's not always racial, but it is always like, it, it looks different every time. And so to me, I think that if we understood our power as influencers, whether that was chefs or food bloggers or whatever, um, all of us play a role in food media. And the thing that, that really grinds my ears about food influencers is that they're distorting the narrative of what good food is, what real food is, what chefs look like, and what hard work and diversity and inclusion look like. They are the ones, especially when they're young, and especially when they're young and of color, they are the ones that are saying, this is okay. This level of inclusion is okay. This level of diversity is okay. And, you know, they can come in take a really beautiful, well-lit photo and get, like, fire a whole menu. And then, like, they can afford to do all those things. And then they can leave and just be like, oh, where where to next? Throw the food in the trash. Yeah, and throw the food in the trash Mm -hmm. or be like, where to next? And not really understand the the toxic, toxic narrative that they've just contributed to 
or um, the story that they've created now that is not the reality of what this restaurant group or restaurant is actually doing in the community that they're in. Um, so I hate food influencers. Yeah. I hate them. And I think that they need to be stopped. At all. I don't hate them. Let me stop. I think they can do some good at times, but I do think they need to be more mindful with the things that they post and the things that they share. And I think they need to understand that they are the new food media. They're the reason why a number of local newspapers have stopped running food sections or have a very short, small food critique and review section because no one is reading that anymore. Everyone's gone digital. And the place that they go to when they're trying to find the best new restaurant or the place to go when they want to eat is Instagram Mm -hmm. or Twitter or whatever. They're not going to Baltimore Sun eat section. And then that person, not specifically, but like that influencer, Mm -hmm. by no democracy of the of the community or city they're representing, like they get to be kind of the gatekeeper. Yeah. And what does that also say when they are not from that city exactly. and they have no real understanding of like and that's the person the that political gets to pick history and, and gets to pick and choose on the spot time success in that city as a food business. Crazy. If they if their idea of good food is centered in um, whiteness or a proximity to whiteness or European cuisine, or a proximity to European cuisine, then that's a problem. Especially in a city that is 65% Black, like Baltimore is. That is so, that's such a problem. Anytime that someone who has control over who is successful or who finds success in the uh, food scene is one not from there and has no real understanding of the issues facing people who are from from a city like Baltimore, has control, that's that's a problem to me. And I, I do not, I don't know, it's, it may come off as like a very nativist thing to say, but I think that um, if you're here, you should have an investment in the people. And if you don't have an investment in the people in the city that you've relocated to, um, then you don't have the right to have a voice to speak for them. Well, and, and now it's becoming like corporate and unionized because an influencer used to be someone who talked about things they liked yeah. And they did it for free. Yeah. And you listen to them because, you know, I respect Andrew. And if Andrew's eating at this place, but like, have you seen Zip Kick? Like, no. so I actually have their website up right now because I have so many people. It, it The tag is a global marketplace that connects freelancers, influencers, and consumer brands and our satisfied partners, McDonald's, Rubio's, <laughs> you know, but basically what you're seeing is I mean, Four Roses bourbon. So now if you want to be like an influencer in the DC market, you go to Zipkick and you apply and they connect you with a local Zipkick uh, affiliate influencer who is building a team. So then you're basically on part of a team. And I know some of these people and have some idea of how it works. So now it's not just an individual going out, eating places, taking pictures of food and things they like. They're actually getting set up. And you have to go through a gatekeeper of whoever the local zip kick, um, you know, brand affiliate connector is. And you're basically now just being working for someone else. It's a media agency pretending to be true and authentic when really they're not. And now you're seeing these people going and posting food of some local restaurants and then they'll do a sponsored post by McDonald's. And I've, wow. and I've talked to some of these people no and said to them, like, don't you feel that hurts your credibility? And the answer to me was it pays the bills. Like when McDonald's put out the spicy chicken sandwich or whatever a couple months ago, all the D.C. food bloggers 
who were affiliated with Zipkick went and did sponsored posts for McDonald's. And it's like, in my mind, like I would never do that to my brand. Um, but I guess some people don't care and go for the money. I mean, I guess it pays the bills, right? That's ridiculous. I mean, I didn't even know that was a thing. See, and that's, that's what I'm talking about. Like the fact that people, I mean, that was literally what we were talking about on the break about like, you know, making <laughs> that decision of like, or making that choice of like, when I, when I decided to do the Patreon and why I decided to do the Patreon, I get contacted often to do things like that. I get sent free stuff. I get sent, you know, gift cards here, but I have to like agree to like, they'll activate the gift card as soon as I agree to like share a post about where I went and did and like da 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 and hashtag this, that and the other. I don't do that because I know the power of my voice and I understand like to them, it's like $50 and they can just send me. But to me, I know what my voice is saying and I know what what that could then um, be a catalyst for. And, and I'm going to go on record. I don't personally have problems with that. In fact, I'm hoping that some of the chefs in our organization can make true partnerships with business brands. I mean, yeah. I think it would be smart for if Andrew's o- already using this brand tomatoes right, for his exactly, pizza exactly. to do that. I mean, I've, I've gotten deals. I posted something on Instagram and it had photos of like deli quart containers that I used to hold stuff in. And a company reached out and said like, Hey, can we send you a box of quart containers okay, and some so money yeah. to your PayPal? Like I was already using yeah. them anyway. Yeah. It's not like me taking money from Coca-Cola, but I don't exactly. drink soda. Exactly. So I, I still think there are ways to work with brands that you respect and like. And if someone wants to sponsor, I mean, we're always talking about, we're looking for sponsors for the show and if it's the right person, the right brand. So, I, you know, I just want to make sure I go on record now. I don't want people saying, oh, I know Chris took those deli container money um, and did a sponsored post. But no, it's nothing wrong. With, I think that's something, it's nothing wrong with partnering. And I think that goes back to the collaboration, collaborative mindset. There's nothing wrong with partnering that is beneficial to building your brand, whether that's like reach wise or financially. But I think you have to think about when your partnership, what your partnership and what that collaboration says about your brand, I guess, if we're going to say brand, it's what that says about your brand, what that says about your mission, what that says about um, that company and why they want to partner with you. The thing that I see a problem, the thing that I think is problematic about the sponsorship of which I can't believe that's a thing like a food influencer posting about McDonald's is these are the same people that will be like going to a Michelin star restaurant and talking about like they treat their or talking about a local restaurant group and talking about how they treat their employees like crap what do you think they treat their employees like at freaking McDonald's like, and then you want to talk about how, like, you can't, you can't go from one farm-to-table restaurant and be, like, posting and talking about a farm-to-table restaurant and all these, like, very bespoke ingredients that they use and then go post about McDonald's. But I don't know that a lot of them do. I, what I, I mean, I don't see a lot of really good food influencers getting into those places. I see a lot of... I do, it, and that's do actually one of my colleagues. The one that I was talking about was, I mean, if you're getting mm, contacted by yeah, a yeah. national publication like Bon Appetit... Yeah, that's huge, that is, that's that huge. Was that is the reality. But do you think, think they're more the rarity, though, for the high end? Because I see a lot of, like, a mom-and-pop shop opens, like, a uh-huh. new ramen place or a chicken and waffles, and then they get, like, a gaggle of food influencers to go in. And it seems to be kind of like they're giving away $8 chicken and waffles, but you're not necessarily getting comped 
a $200 Michelin star meal. Well, that's the thing. I don't think they're getting comped it, but what it's doing is creating this like desire, this desire to want to become, this desire to want to go to this place um, without really understanding the practices of that restaurant, Mm -hmm. right? It's like creating this exclusivity and saying like, oh, this is cool. I want to go here. Like, how do I get there? Everyone's posting about this place now, but the reality is like they are... (laughs) <laughs> they have very bigoted um, hiring practices and um, they don't treat women well that work for their restaurant group. Like, but you've now created this narrative of like desire and like exclusivity. Like you, you can post all these things and talk about how great a restaurant is, but you have no, again, going back to influencers, not having any real understanding about how the industry works as far as like working in front of house or working in back of house or sourcing of ingredients. None of those things. They have no real concept. They just know that they can get that exclusivity and that cool factor of posting. Well, most of them don't free. work in food or have no, a background in food. Like, and this isn't their job. It's extra money for them. No, yeah, it's and they work money. in IT or whatever, and they've never worked a day in their life in the food industry no. and know very little about what goes on behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And practices of those places. But it goes back to what you're saying about like taking grant money. You want to have the hard conversations and maybe some radical ideas. But if you're taking money from a company, they're going to want to limit what you say or what your guests say. And I think if you want to have true freedom to do what you want and say what you want, then you can't be beholden to anyone who's paying the bills. Yeah, you know, unbought and unbossed. Yeah. (laughs) As they say, like you can't, you just can't. There's no way to, um, I don't know. I think there are ways to be strategic with sponsorship and collaboration that um, can help grow a movement, but it won't necessarily further the movement. Right. It's always like when people say, like, can you dismantle a system from within? Like the answer is no. Like you kind of can't like it's you have to kind of step away from it. It's always like that that uh, I mean, I I created a, a piece of work around that idea called the table of white supremacy and it was like a feast a table of uh, food which each item on the table represented a byproduct of supremacy and how um, at the end we all ate from the table because we were all we're all complicit regardless of whether or not we want to be or even if we know that we are and to me I created that out of always hearing like we need a seat at the table ladies need a seat at the table and it's like I don't want to sit at this table like that's a very old mindset to me like this table was never created for me to sit at and if I'm sitting here there is something wrong with that because I don't want to sit at this table this table doesn't serve me it doesn't serve my people it doesn't serve the vision that I have for the future so how do I change things at this table I can't I have to walk away and I have to build my own table like there are things that I can take from my experience at the table and maybe like recreate but oftentimes that's not really the best option you just have to like go and create your own path and I think that's like what we just talked about like you guys creating the podcast and me doing the design thing it's like it's difficult yes but oftentimes to create the vision for the future that we have for our work and for food and um, for anything we have to kind of go outside of the box and just create something that may not necessarily be new but might be new to your respective community or just um, new to you. We can't just kind of keep doing the same thing and expect to get different results. Yeah. I mean, one of my 
things and Andrew's heard it over and we've talked a lot about it's like this working for free and getting chefs to work for free and I, yeah. I'll post things on our Facebook group and some people basically say like stay in your lane like if you don't want to do it no one's forcing you to do it but it's like mm-hmm. if no one holds these people accountable and pushes back then nothing ever changes if you year after year hold the same event and get people to work for free and nobody ever calls you on it then they're never going to offer to pay you money and this is the first time I'm starting to kind of come in an advocacy role and pushing back. And I wrote some letters this past month to some organizations saying, you know, I got the notices that you're looking for free food from chefs and I want to put it back on you. Why do you think you don't have to pay them for their their labor and their goods? And I feel like that was the spark because then it did trigger other people in my organization to write the same letter to them Mm -hmm. saying the same thing. And I don't know that it's changing anything this year, but nobody wanted, everyone was afraid of being blackballed. Nobody wanted to be the one to come out and say, I won't do it because of this. They just say, sorry, I can't, but like there's power in numbers. And that's what I'm trying to do is like standing up and saying like, no, this isn't okay. You have this event every year and you want people to give away food for 800 people for free. No, that's not cool. And you Mm -hmm. shouldn't expect that That and do, and and do better. You know, it's a for-profit agency. It's not a charity. It's an event that's making money. So you need to be paying people for this. And I'm going to bang that drum. And some people are going to get on board and some people, they don't want to speak up, but that's okay too. I think that's why, I mean, now I'm always saying like, you know, with the whole exposure pay thing just blows my mind. And it's constantly people are saying oh well, this will be good exposure like you should do it it'll be good exposure now granted like sometimes I do find myself like all right you know what like this would be good exposure and I actually don't mind and it is kind of a line and sure why not but oftentimes very rarely does that come across like very rarely do opportunities present themselves in that way and when they do present themselves um I really have to weigh it because if you think about it, like people die in the wilderness from exposure. <laughs> like, that's, that's always how I think about it. It's like people die from exposure. And that's literally what happens to a lot of these small businesses and pop-ups. Like um, I remember seeing a video the other day online about this woman who had this, this golf, not golf, this tennis visor that she created for like when you're actively like paying sports out in the sun and it protects your face. One day, this woman who was like caught up in a scandal, um, like celebrity, she wore the visor and her sales went from like nothing to like insane. Like they were like went super through the roof. Her visor went viral and it almost killed her business. So it's like exposure, yes, can be good. But what happens is oftentimes these businesses are exposed Getting high, given high visibility, and they are not at a place where they can sustainably support themselves at that high level of visibility. And the thing that was supposed to help them is actually now hurt them, and this business goes under. There was a restaurant, I think it was like a burger or something. I don't remember, maybe it was Esquire. Like it was a small place mm-hmm. in the middle of nowhere, and like a food writer or something was like driving through town. And like mm-hmm. I had the best burger of my life there. Mm-hmm. And it just, it went viral, whether it was Eater or Bon Appetit ran mm-hmm. it or something. And I think eventually they went under because then they had lines out the door. You know, it was like a mom and pop shop just doing like regular mm-hmm. food. And then now they've got the best burger in the country mm-hmm. and there's lines out the door. So then they start running out of food and then everyone's pissed. Mm-hmm. And then all the reviews come yeah. in and give them a yeah. one star because I drove three hours to come to this place to get the best burger of my life. And you ran out of beef at two in the yeah. afternoon. You should have expected that. But it was this thing they weren't handled for that. Like they blew up literally overnight and i think they might have eventually closed it was a couple years Mm -hmm. ago and you just see that thing like they just wanted to go out and do good food and have a business that sustained them 
and too much of that exposure. And I think it was just like one piece yeah. that put them on the map. I mean, you, you know, I think as businesses, you kind of hope that you're going to get something like that, but you, you know, sometimes be careful what you wish for. Right. And that's one of those things where you just have to be, make sure that you are um, prepared. If, okay. If you do take the exposure pay, sponsorship, collaboration, whatever, partnership, are you prepared for what this could potentially bring if it is successful in that way? And if it is successful in that way, do you have the foresight to say, okay, we have done enough or, um, okay, we're going to sell out right now, even though we have enough, we're going to sell out right now so that we can build up our reserves our energy, our time, our ingredients, whatever, our resources, so that we can further meet this higher demand. Um, just being able to kind of like take control, again, take control of your your um, business um, so that you're not being overwhelmed and not being pushed to the point of exhaustion and depletion um, business-wise and also like emotionally. That, that can be overwhelming. So... For sure. <laughs> this conversation has been amazing, super insightful, and very informative, and I'm yeah. sure interesting for the listeners. Um, All over the place, sorry. Y'all. I think you have to go now, right? So, yeah, I do have to go. Um, okay. Sorry to the listeners, but I'm, we're not even going to... We can do that. I mean... The on the fly? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it won't take that yeah. long, actually. All right, yeah. we're gonna. I'm going to ask you some questions. Just okay. answer them as fast as you can. Sure. <laughs> and it won't. It won't take long. Yeah. So we're jumping right into it. Okay. All right. On the fly. What's your favorite tool in the kitchen? Ooh, mandolin. What's your favorite food to eat? Ooh. Bacon. (laughs) (laughs) If you had all the monies, what's the first position you would hire for yourself? Ooh. An accountant? That's boring and not fun. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Who's your favorite chef? Um, my favorite chef, uh, I would say I've not, I have not had their food, but one of my favorite chefs, like conceptually, as far as what they do is actually a colleague of mine, Omar Tate. Um, and actually we've never formally met. I'll be meeting him next month at a dinner that he's doing, which will be my first time tasting his food. I'm so excited, but he, um, has a dinner uh, pop-up called Honeysuckle Pop-Up. And um, he's done some really amazing things in New York and Philly. And I will be at a hospitality conference, a food and beverage hospitality conference called Resistance Served. It's going to be in New Orleans on um, February 2nd to the 5th. And I will be there um and he's going to have the opening dinner on opening night. And his dinner series are really, his series, his dinner series are really, um, his dinner series, excuse me, are really interesting and innovative. And I love the way that he uses um, Black American food culture in history and incorporates it in his menu. Um, and the preparation and the way that it's served is very like visually stunning and he also does uh, poetry as well, which speaks to me because I also write poetry and I like to incorporate that when I do dinner. So, um, yeah, I think I think he's really cool. Sorry, that was not a quick answer, but <laughs> no, it's totally OK. 
it needed the context. <laughs> All the listeners. Yeah. Okay. Honeysuckle pop-up is his Instagram, I believe. All right. So art or science? Both. You can't have one without <laughs> the other. They, they coexist, and most people don't understand that, but they do. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. What's one thing you do differently from everybody else? Ooh. Related to food? Or not. Um, I am critical of others, but also very critical of myself. Um, and I think that that is not very visually aware. And I think I, I don't think I do it better than anyone, or I don't think I do it better than anyone else, but I think I don't do it like many other people. I think people think I'm very hard on people when I'm always talking about the things that are happening, but I'm even more hard on myself with the decisions that I make as far as like, businesses I support or things that I do or don't do or I follow through on um, goals and plans. So I'm critical like any Virgo would be, but I'm also very critical of myself as well. Cool. Um, what's your favorite digital tool? Mm, um, like app or something or yeah. like my phone? What do you mean? It could be, it could be an app. It could be a scale. Um, it could be um, a thermometer. Um, yeah, like any digital tool. My favorite digital tool would be the internet okay. because it's highly, highly resourceful. Can you recommend a book or a podcast? Ooh, um, <laughs> That's a not book. Oh, my goodness. Emergent Strategy by Adrienne Marie Brown. It's not a cookbook, unfortunately, but she uses a lot of beautiful flowery language about creating the future that we want, which can be applied to a culinary career or just um, social change around you in your respective community and a podcast. I really love 99% Invisible. It's a design podcast um, that really talks about things that we come across every day that you wouldn't know the backstory of. Like they had a really interesting one one time on curb cut. Like the things on the corner that we think are like the little ridged that mm. things um, that I always thought were to keep wheelchairs from like crossing into the street. Mm. But it was also or I thought they were for blind people mm-hmm. to like, but it was like a whole story behind it. And I was completely wrong. But it's a design podcast that talks about how we engage pretty much with the world and the history and story behind um, those things that is very literally no, literally no. I don't even think that's a word, but you know what I mean. <laughs> cool. We'll yeah. link both of those in the yeah. in the show notes. And I want to ask you next, what's your favorite culinary resources? Um, I would say my favorite culinary resources are most of the time cookbooks and design books, which doesn't seem to make sense, but it's very important. I feel in like the aesthetic nature of creating a dish, um, especially if you're a very like creative person um, and you don't necessarily create dishes in a traditional way and there are stories behind them. I like to think of myself as a storyteller with food. Mm-hmm. So um, things like color theory books I look at, which I have a book, a book that I highly recommend is um, The Secret Lives of Color. This woman did a research, um, I guess pretty much a research book on different colors, their names, and why they're named that way. And it gives a very interesting history um, 
through the like entirety of the rainbow on why different colors like lead white and like silver and where silver came from and um you know like talking about how in greek um mythology they would say things like the the wine red sea and this was at a time like when the sea was first mentioned and the color of the sea was first mentioned in literature it was mentioned as the wine red sea Hmm. and we know that the sea is not red but what was wine like back then so it kind of explored this whole um, history of language and color and how we see things today and what color means um, in food and also in history and how that is important in the stories that we tell um, but yeah that's that's why I think design is so important when we talk about food and that's why I was like I can't choose art or science because we need <laughs> both to exist yeah. um, as creatives in the world and kind of shape the futures that we want yeah. cool that was not a fly quite answer. I'm so sorry. I'm like, sorry. on the fly, let me like, give you a long response. <laughs> if it's good, I'm not going to shut anybody up. So context is very important. Yeah. All right. How do you decompress? Ooh, I'm so ashamed. <laughs> I'm so ashamed. You know what I've been decompressing with lately? Like an old lady. I've been playing Candy Crush. I don't know where this came from. I, I play, recently I just chess to decompress. I'm okay. like an old man. So. I literally, my mom plays Candy Crush on her tablet, and I'm always like, I was always like, why did she do that? And I remember one day just being like, you know what, I'm gonna try it, and I tried it, and I was like, dang, these little vibrations and these little candy blocks, like. I get it. This is great. There's nothing wrong. So I started playing Fortnite, which sounds ridiculous. No. But because, like, my son was so obsessed and he had never played and he played a friend's house. So I'm like, I'm going to see what this bullshit video game is. Yes. And then I'm like, nah, you're not playing this. And I was like, oh, I got, like, ten minutes. Like, maybe I'll go on and, yes, get, and, and go play this game for a few. So, I'll, like, I'll be in bed. My wife's like, you played Fortnite? I'm like, yeah, like, I worked, like, 15 hours today. I'm just going to go, like do this game for like 15 minutes and then like one in the morning I'm like oh man I need to shut this down I think it's one of those things where I feel like I am I'm constantly reading last year I read 21 books constantly reading for fun and for research I'm constantly engaging in these very political conversations I'm constantly like doing all of these things that are very emotion filled and like politically charged and constantly having me thinking and reflecting sometimes you just want to do something that has sounds and fun colors and doesn't mean anything mm-hmm. it doesn't mean anything and it's just like everything else I feel has, in my life has so much meaning and intention sometimes I just truly want to unplug and do something that's silly and oh hey I know something that's silly and not um you know full of like such intense um thought especially like in living in this crazy country that we live in right now is <laughs> always something going on and, you know so we're never away from like the issues of the day so I think that a little silly video game is, is fine you know <laughs> I love it I get sucked into my silly little games of chess yeah. I play one minute games it's so intense mm-hmm. and I'll do it for like an hour same way Fortnite you know chess mm-hmm. anyway <laughs> what's the best meal you've ever had who ever had? Um, mm, I don't know if I've had the best meal ever. I've had like top, like most memorable meals, but what's the most memorable meal you've ever had? Um, just pick one. The most memorable meal that I had. <laughs> just pick one. Uh, the most memorable meal that I've ever had 
was one of the most actually was with um, at Dookie Chase with um, the late chef Leah Chase. And that was last year, actually. It was last February at the last and first uh, Resistance Serve conference. And she was so fiery and like full of life. And a few months later, she passed away. But she was hilarious. And the food was amazing. And she was still cooking in a wheelchair. Um, just elderly, amazing woman. And um, I don't know. It was it was meaningful and special to me and memorable um, because I knew that I was never going to experience that moment again. And I knew that the food that was being prepared for us was made from the heart. And it was her and Carla Hall. They did the dinner together because she was also at the conference. And um, in my mind, also, I was like, she's in her later years. Like, this might be my last time to experience this food. And I didn't think it was going to be a few months later that she would pass away. So it was so, um, it was really special. It was memorable for um, the emotional reasons, but also just, I don't know, the food was comforting and delicious, you know. Yeah. Cool. All right. And the last question <laughs> that I have. What do you want to be remembered for? Oh my God. <laughs> it's not, so not on the fly. Um, I want to be remembered as someone that tried. <laughs> someone that tried to make a difference in, in my community by being honest with myself and being honest with others, even if it wasn't something that they wanted to hear. Um, really standing by what I believed in and speaking up for others and speaking up when it came to um, injustice and unfairness and inequity. Um, I want to be remembered as someone, not that I was a rabble rouser, but I want to be remembered as someone who um, shook the table. Who, who not even shook the table, but kicked, it, kicked, kicked the leg it off when they was walking away to make their own, you know? Like, <laughs> I just, um, you know, I don't I think that a lot of people have this idea in my mind that, or in their mind of me based on how they've engaged with me online. They think that I am, one. it's either good or bad. They think that I'm like revolutionary and I speak out and I say these things and I'm creating all these beautiful dishes. And then you have people who are like, I'm a sore loser who didn't um, succeed in the traditional sense and is not a real chef and can't cook. And I think, and, and is a, an influencer. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, in a weird way, I could kind of be both of those things. And I'm actually fine with that. But I think I want to be remembered as someone who genuinely, genuinely lived with and through food and didn't have any apologies about how I did that in a public way. Because it was my story to tell and not anybody else's. So I guess that's how I want to be remembered. And that was quick, I feel, based on all my other answers that I gave that were good. long dissertations. <laughs> but those, that was pretty good. good. I, think, yeah. you, I think you'll succeed at that. You're a real life influencer. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I so, appreciate that. And that's the important thing. That's all we got. This conversation has been amazing. I think <laughs> it's time now that we let everybody know where they can follow you, and about your Patreon. Oh, yes. Okay, so you can follow me on Instagram and on Facebook at Crystal C. Mac. That's K-R-Y-S-T-A-L-C as in cat, M-A-C-K. Um, 
And my Patreon, which I've just launched, if you want to support me monthly and support the programming that I create around um, food and social design um, and the issues that we deal with that are connected to those things, um, you can go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Crystal C. Mac, and you'll find ways you can support there. Even if it's just a one-time support, there's a link there that shows you where to support, or if you could do a minimum of like a dollar a month, which is literally like way less than like a Netflix subscription and actually helps to support not only me, but others in the food community that I work with. Um, that would be amazing. And also my design studio is absence.of. Um, and that's on Instagram as well. So make sure that. you follow all of those and we'll link all of it in the show notes. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Crystal, so much for coming out. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been great. Um, Thank you. Like and subscribe and please leave us a review on whatever platform you listen on. If you have anything to say to us, you can email us at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. And we're going to sign off now. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show or sponsoring a show, please let us know. We can be reached at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. Thanks so much.